Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, Jacob talks with our healthcare reporter, Megan Messerly, about the COVID-19 pandemic one year after it began in Nevada. After that, we have another installment of Freshman Orientation, this time with Democratic Freshman Assemblyman C.H. Miller and Republican Freshman Assemblyman Andy Matthews. One year ago today, the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Nevada. In the year since, more than 294,000 Nevadans have contracted the virus, of which 5,000 have died. But as grim as much of the pandemic has been, uh, we hit the year mark with more good news than ever on the horizon. Three vaccine candidates have been approved by the federal government for emergency use, and for weeks, caseloads have trended sharply downward. As we enter this new phase of the pandemic, one that's been defined by an uncertain push and pull of both new vaccines and new viral mutations, we wanted to take a moment to look back and examine how we got here and where we might go next. Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly has been in the middle of this story from before day one, and she's been spearheading a massive project looking back at one year of the coronavirus. She joins us now. Megan, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. All right, Megan, so you've been knee-deep in this reporting for a year, and I really want to take a step back and start at the beginning. What was the moment that you started to suspect that this virus was going to become something big? Yeah, it's a a really interesting question, uh, actually, because as our our readers know, I I wear two hats at the Indy. I cover healthcare, but I also cover elections. And so early in 2020, I was knee deep in covering the caucus leading up to Nevada's Democratic Presidential Caucus in late February. And so I was very focused on, on all of that. And, you know, we had just started hearing about this virus in China. But I remember it even took some time before candidates really started talking about it on on the campaign trail and in debates. I was sort of learning about it, I think, as the general public was as well, because I wasn't sort of knee deep in, in COVID reporting from the beginning, being so focused on the caucus and recalling back in February, the, the, the Indy sent me to Iowa to cover Iowa's caucus and New Hampshire to cover the, the primary and I remember being in airports, flying through New York and seeing people wearing masks. And now sort of sheepishly, I say this, but wondering why are people wearing masks? You know, we've heard that this is something far off in China. And so I think my understanding of it initially was similar to the, the public's understanding. And so it was really once, you know, caucus coverage wrapped up that I kind of that okay, I need to take the elections hat off now and then turn to this virus. And, and I remember starting to work on a story about where, where we're at, what preparations were, were happening, you know, with regard to the virus, what were state officials doing, what were local public health officials doing to prepare. And, and in that time period on, on March 5th, that's uh, when we had our, our first confirmed case. And I, I broke the news early that morning. And then the Southern Nevada Health District confirmed it later in the day. There was a press conference and that was kind of the the beginning, I think, really of the of the public facing side. Obviously, the, the governor had had a press conference in late February to say we don't have any cases, we're we're monitoring this. But I think it really became real for everyone on on March fifth once we had our first confirmed case. And I'm wondering too, just to take a step back and put ourselves back in that moment, there was that weird 
10-day-long interim period where we had that first case, but I think a lot of people still hadn't really hit what was happening yet. I remember, just to insert myself here, uh, I was walking the strip just after that first case was announced and asking people if they were concerned. The answer is universally no, perhaps a self-selecting group of people on the strip during the middle of this. But obviously, since that time, we've all been living the coronavirus. I think we've all got our own personal journeys when it comes to dealing with a global pandemic. But a lot of the way that the virus has been shaped over the last year has been defined by the government response and the response of individuals to the way that the virus spreads. So I want to take a step back and, and really think about what's happened there. So in Nevada, there were two major spikes like everywhere else, one in the summer and again in the winter, with a little bit of variance from county to county. And so I'm curious from your perspective, from all the reporting you've done, what were the major decisions driving both the ebbs and the flows we've seen over the last year? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I've been talking to a lot of state health officials, local health officials, public health experts in Nevada about this. And my question to so many of them has been, when cases rise, why do they rise? And when cases fall, why why do they fall? And this is the, the million dollar question. And fortunately, there's still, I don't think, as great of an answer as, as we'd like there to be. But if you think back to the beginning, right back in March, we weren't doing any mitigation measures, right? Like we weren't, we weren't aware that this was a problem. We didn't know about social distancing, none of these vocabulary terms that are part of our everyday lives now, those, those just didn't exist back then. So at the beginning, that first shutdown was about just stopping this exponential spread of cases because we literally were saying, you know, it was one and then we'd find more. And then suddenly it was 11 and, and the case numbers really were, we, we were seeing, they were low numbers, but it was exponential growth that we were seeing. And so it was important to um, sort of get that initial viral spread under control. You know, since then, when we made the decision as a state to open up, start opening up businesses, it was announced at the end of April, started happening. Uh, first businesses opened in early May, more opened by the end of May, and then casinos opened in early June. We really saw this significant increase over the summer, especially in, in Clark County. You know, and a lot of folks look at that and say, you know, we expected once we lifted mitigation measures that, or that initial shutdown, that we would see some case in, increase. I don't think people sort of expected the extent to which cases would increase and, and how rapidly they would uh, grow specifically in Las Vegas. So you think about it though, the governor implemented a mask mandate toward the end of June. Then he made the decision to close bars after that. But we really didn't see, um, you know, beyond that sort of other mitigation measures go into effect. So you could say, was it was it the mask wearing? Did that help because we didn't previously have a mask mandate in place? But a lot of folks I talk to say, obviously there's uh, a role for state mitigation measures to have an impact on, on cases but a lot of it is honestly our, our sort of own individual human perceptions of how bad things are, right? People kind of want this like COVID forecast, you know, is the COVID bad outside today? Should I leave my house? And so there is this psychological element of people hear that cases are getting worse, whether it's on the nightly news, whether people are sharing it on social media, they hear that things are worse and they make individual choices to change their behavior. I'm sure you've had this happen. I know I've had uh, friends who've done this as well and family members, and I'm sure our listeners have made these choices as well, but people say, okay, I was invited to be, um, maybe it was an outdoor gathering with masks, you know, pretty safe, but people said, you know, no, I, I, cases are pretty bad. Like, I think maybe we should wait a little bit, right? People make these individual choices and the collective sum of those individual choices actually has a pretty significant impact on how cases spread. And so I think we saw this again in the fall when we had that big spike of cases, right? We did see uh, the state put in place this, you know, statewide pause. We saw occupancy limits 
go down for businesses. We saw gathering sizes reduced. So there were, you know, mitigation measures in place. And obviously that has some sort of an impact. But also people were hearing cases are spiking. You hear about what's happening in, in neighboring California and Utah, where they don't have enough resources to treat patients. And, and all of those things sort of psychologically contribute to our own individual choices that we make as humans. And, and so much of this pandemic, you know, the government can put in place rules, but they put in place rules to try to change human behavior. And that's why this sort of individual choice aspect is so important because in a country like the United States, we're not like China where we're, we're going to lock down and literally everyone's locked inside their houses, right? That, that isn't just how things work here. So even when the government puts in place mitigation measures, like thinking of the statewide pause, private gatherings were, were limited, right? People were supposed to limit who they were bringing into their own homes, make sure those gatherings were small, make sure they were bringing together too many households. But you have to rely on people to comply with that, right? It's people's individual choices saying, okay, the government's telling me to do this. I understand why they're telling me to do this. So now I'm going to comply with this. But that really takes individual action beyond just what the government can put in place. So it really is a combination of a lot of these factors. So switching gears a little bit, this pandemic has gone on for so long and has had such a massive toll on basically everyone that it's easy to sort of get detached from the actual numbers that we're looking at. But there has been a serious human toll here. Hundreds of thousands of Americans alone have died from this virus. So I'm curious, you've talked to a lot of people over the course of the last year and for this specific retrospective. What have they said about the way that the pandemic has affected them? Yeah, I mean, and really the answer to this question is impossible because it's affected us all in in so many ways, right? From people who have fallen ill to the virus and and died who are no longer with us. There's about 5,000 Nevadans that we've lost now to this virus. And so that's obviously one really concrete impact. Others have fallen ill with this virus and been hospitalized or people who've even fallen ill with this virus and now suffering from what people call long COVID, right? These lingering effects of COVID. So there is this sort of immediate impact uh, just from the virus virus itself, you know, uh, people who've died, people who've lost family members, people who are still struggling with the after effects of of COVID. But then there's people who've been affected economically, right? And this is something I've been talking to a lot of folks about is, is sometimes we frame it as this debate between, you know, public health measures and the economy, right? But if you think about the economic side for a little bit, and when people don't have jobs, you know, they, they might lose their housing, they can't put food on the table, they might fall into poverty. And there are a lot of negative public health consequences associated with that. And they may not be as immediate, but we know that that folks in poverty, you know, pretty much all the leading causes of, of disease are worse for folks in poverty, and they just have more negative health outcomes. So sometimes it's, it's framed as, as this sort of polar choice between a public health and, and, and the economic side, but really there are public health consequences on, on that side as well. And, you know, at our worst point, one in four Nevadans was unemployed. Currently, one in four Nevadans is, is on Medicaid, the, the health insurance program for low-income folks. I mean, that, that's staggering, right? That's a quarter of our population that, that doesn't have health insurance, the, the sort of normal ways we're used to it, right, from, from our employers and things like that. A quarter people rely on the state to provide them health care, and that's it's just a staggering figure. It's also worth noting the, the impact on kids, right? We've talked about schools and, and my colleague Jackie Valley has done a lot of incredible reporting on the impact on on children, but we have more than 500,000 children, half a million kids uh, learning over screens instead of in the classroom. And, And there's untold impacts of that. We're starting to see some of that in terms of mental health and academic achievement and things like that. But those are things that also, we're not going to see the full consequences of probably for, for, you know, a year or years to come. 
So just the number of ways in which this pandemic has, has affected people is really so vast. You think about mental health, substance abuse is significantly up and anxiety and depression are significantly up in, in Nevada. And so when you think back where we were a year ago and, and thinking about all of this, I don't think any of us would have anticipated that, that all of this would happen, right? We're sort of thinking about the immediate, I don't want to get COVID, you know, I don't want to die from COVID, but but now it's just expanded to be sort of this, this universe of ways in which folks have been affected by this pandemic. So I mentioned it in the intro, but we're really in this kind of new phase of the pandemic where maybe for the first time we're seriously having discussions about when is this going to end? When does the new normal start? Uh, We've got three vaccine candidates that have been approved for use by the federal government. And President Joe Biden announced this week that he expects all adult Americans should have a vaccine available by the end of May. That's not to say that they will be able to get it because states have to distribute those vaccines, but the supply will be there, which has been a problem up until now. At the same time, we've got these new COVID variants that we have very little data on that we don't know how they're going to affect the course of the pandemic. And the vaccines could protect us against them, but there may still be variants later. And as long as the pandemic drags out, that will still be a concern. With all that as the backdrop, where do we go from here, do you think? You know, this is a question I've been asking, you know, everyone I've talked to from folks in the governor's office, public health folks, local government folks, I've been asking them this question on on a scale from from pessimistic to optimistic, you know, how, how do you feel about where where we're headed? And I'd say almost all of them, one person told me she's a realist, but I would say the rest of them told me that they're optimistic. I think some of them feel like they have to be optimistic, but I think there are causes for hope. Like you mentioned, the fact that we'll have enough vaccines for, for folks who want them by the the end of May, that's uh, huge news in of, in of itself. I think there are obviously questions, right? There's still a lot we don't know about the vaccine, still not knowing really to what extent it prevents people from transmitting the virus. Like you said, not really knowing to what extent these vaccines protect against the new variants. We know that they'll protect to some extent, but we just need to see sort of the real world how these things play out. In an ideal universe, you would have uh, years to run clinical trials and we would sort of know all these things before, before getting a vaccine, but we don't have the luxury of time in this case. And so unfortunately, we're still dealing with a lot of these unknowns, but I think folks still see cause for optimism, right? You still think about these, these vaccines are going to have a significant impact on the spread of the virus. And so I think, I think that in of itself is sort of a cause for, for celebration for, for some folks. I talked to doctors too in hospitals and, and this fall surge was immensely difficult for them. I mean, they were really pushed beyond their limits just with how many patients were sick in the hospital with COVID. At the same time though, doctors have a lot more clinical competency in how to treat COVID, right? I talked to the doctors who treated Ronald Pipkins, the first man who you know was confirmed to have COVID in Nevada. He was in the hospital for, for quite a long time. And, and he was the first COVID patient that his doctors had ever seen, right? And so they're turning to the strategies they know best, originally thinking that putting people on the ventilator was the, was the best course of, of action when people's oxygen levels dropped and then learning, no, we want to try to keep them off the ventilators as long as possible to give them the best chance of, of recovery because once they go on the ventilator, it's, their chances of survival go significantly down. So talking to doctors now, they just feel like they have a lot more clinical competency. So if we can keep those hospital levels lower, that sort of gives the doctors the, the time and ability they need to really devote you know, their time to, to these really sick patients. So, so not to say, I mean, you, we still don't want folks going in the hospital, you know, getting, getting sick with COVID. And that's part of you know, why the vaccines are so important, right? It's a lot of people talk about the vaccines. Are they preventing us from getting COVID? Or are they preventing us from getting really sick with COVID, right? And the overall goal of the vaccines is to pre- prevent us from getting really sick with COVID, right? And needing to go to the hospital um, and to prevent folks from actually passing away from the illness. And so 
obviously being hospitalized with COVID is, is still really difficult, but doctors do have better strategies when it comes to treating it. So I think there's a little bit more hope there as well, that we just know a lot more about this virus than we did a year ago. And I think, I think folks are hopeful that the vaccine is, is going to make an impact and that we're, we're going to see some changes. Obviously we're kind of in this spot right now as, as a country, you know, we were seeing these big de- decreases from these, from that fall sort of winter surge. And now we're at this place where we're kind of looking at the data saying, where do we go from here in Nevada? We've been looking at this kind of plateau. We've just been going up and down in this high 300 cases a day, low 400 cases a day range for the last little bit. Uh, and it's hard to know, right? We don't, we don't really know where we go from here, but I think folks are, are hopeful at least that the vaccines will, will prevent a fourth sort of wave. If you think about the, the spring wave, the summer wave and the fall wave, but we don't know yet, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on the data, but I think folks are at least trying to be optimistic about about the role that these vaccines are going to have and in, in where we will be in the coming months. Okay. So I want to end with a bit of a meta question. A lot of the journalistic discussion, I think as it should be, has been centered on the big picture and the real outcomes and impacts that are stemming from the pandemic. This really does hurt people specifically. But no one at the Indy and few people in Nevada have been steeped deeper in this totally encompassing story of coronavirus like you have. So I wanted to take a second and ask, what's it been like to be this involved in this story for so long? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, like everyone back in in March, I don't think when I was sort of thinking, well, finish the caucus, I should probably write my first first coronavirus story. I don't even think we we're calling it COVID then necessarily, but should write my first story on all of this. I don't think that I thought a year later, all of this would still be going on. I, you know, public some public health experts, right, saw the writing on the wall, but I think a lot of us sort of members of the general public did not see that. But I, I think from conversations with people, the, the, the big takeaway from all of this is whether, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a state health official, whether you're a grocery store worker or a delivery truck driver, right? This pandemic has, has affected all of us. And sort of, I know those of us who have been able to be employed during the pandemic, especially people who've been working, you know, crazy hours. I remember those first few months of the pandemic when everything was, was very grim and we were you know, we were all working, pretty much everyone on staff was working, we were working like all day and, and weekends, and it was just this never ending, we were just always working, right, there was always new numbers coming out and press conferences and updates on this program or that program being rolled out, just sort of this all the time pace. And I've talked to state health officials about this as well. But I think you feel this tension between being so busy and so overwhelmed by just the the grim realities of what you're covering, right? I, I, total in our coronavirus data spreadsheet, right? The number of new cases every day and the number of new deaths every day. And that's that that takes an emotional toll on you, but at the same time feeling like you're just really lucky to have a job, right? Because you know how many people have been affected by this and and don't don't haven't been as lucky to to have a job in this time and have struggled to keep their housing or, or put food on the table for their families and things like that. So I think it, I think it's a balance there. But I think my main takeaway in doing all this reporting is I think everyone has sort of experienced this pandemic on a human level, right? Whether it's someone who has COVID or, or who has died from COVID or someone who's lost a job or you've lost a job or you've fallen really sick to COVID or you struggled with mental health issues or your family members and friends have, you know, everyone's been touched by this in so many different ways. And and just, I think a lot of this, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the policy, right? And the politics at the, at the Nevada Independent, but I think sometimes zooming in on a human level is really important too, right? To think about how all of this has affected us as as individuals and and everyone has their own story, right? Talking to health officials who've had who have kids, they're struggling with Zoom school while trying to manage the state's pandemic response, or talking to Clark County Commission Chair Marilyn Kirkpatrick, who has a six-year-old granddaughter and 
when I talked to her uh, on the phone for an interview, she, you know, was getting her granddaughter ready for bed. She has to help her with homework and get her ready for bed. And then she told me after she got off the phone with me, she was going to have more calls, you know, so everyone kind of trying to balance their, their personal lives and, and their professional lives, at least as far as folks who are sort of managing the pandemic response, you know, we, we all have these stories about the ways in which they've affected us. And so I think just keeping that as in mind as well, sort of gives us some, some perspective and sort of humanizes this whole conversation that can seem very theoretical, right? And, and this invisible virus, but bringing it back to the way that, that it's affected us on an everyday level, I think is really important. Okay. Well, Megan, thanks so much for sitting down with us and thanks for your reporting over the last year. Yeah, thanks for having me. Today, we began publishing a multi-part series diving deep into the contours of the coronavirus pandemic. The first piece, a short prologue, is available to read right now, and you can keep an eye out for part one of that series this Sunday on the NevadaIndependent.com. Welcome to another installment of Freshman Orientation, the segment where we get to know new members of the Nevada Assembly and Senate. This week, we are first going to meet Democrat Cameron C.H. Miller, a freshman assemblyman from North Las Vegas. He won the seat that is in a very Democratic-leaning district after former assemblywoman and current senator Dina Neal stepped down from her role in the assembly to run for Senate. Miller told us a bit about his background growing up in North Las Vegas, being a hairdresser and actor, and about his late cousin, former assemblyman Tyrone Thompson, who unexpectedly passed away during the 2019 session. So I grew up here in the Valley. I spent a good portion of my life in the Spring Valley Southwest area. And then my grandmother lived in the, what we call the historic West Side. And a lot of my family lives um, in the historic West Side, North Las Vegas. And I spent a lot of time, my weekends, my summers at my grandma's house, my granny's house. She was my granny. I had a granny, a grandma and a grandmother. So, (laughs) and you had to be very specific with each one of those names and titles. So I went, I graduated from Votech High School with enough hours to get my cosmetology license. So I got a cosmetology license, which was kind of like the family business. My father and uh, my stepmother they owned a hair salon for about 25 years. I went into the hair industry for 12 years. I was a licensed stylist here in Nevada. And then I pursued, at the same time, I was pursuing my entertainment goals, career and passion. And so that started with acting. I did some plays. The first play that I did was here at the Nicholas Horn Theater over in at CSN, North Las Vegas campus in Assembly District 7. That was the very first play that I did. It was called Fences, August Wilson's Fences. And then I was attending CSN at the same time and just started to pick up my my acting career. I worked in LA, New York, um, Atlanta. And while I was in Atlanta, I got involved in film production. And so since 2011, I've been involved in film production and we produced this project called the 11111 Project. We created it there in Atlanta. We were able to bring it here to Las Vegas and modify it for young people. And that was what brought me back to Las Vegas. My cousin was Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson, the great Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson. And before he was an Assemblyman, he was the great Tyrone Thompson. So, but he and I were always very close. Once I became like a young adult, 
through the rest of my adult years until he passed, we got increasingly closer. And when I came back and got involved with community work, he at one point asked me if I'd ever thought of running for office, but he saw something in me and he, you know, told me that he thought it would be, I would be really good at it. I started becoming a lot more interested in understanding if we can do things that actually changes generational outcomes. I'm a lot more interested. And I didn't expect to not have him around to participate because right now I'm like, I need my mentor that is not here anymore. (laughs) But that that was my path into politics. We wanted to know more about Miller's thoughts coming into this session during a tumultuous time and what some of his legislative priorities were, especially as the state recovers from the pandemic. I think that people in the past, you have gone into session thinking, like, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But when everyone is hurting at all levels from one thing, we have to consider what recovery from that thing looks like because it actually impacts every other aspect of life. Right. So when we talk about economic recovery, you know, ensuring that that we get Nevadans back to work, we know that we're the hardest hit state. We know that we're going to take the longest to recover, because if the rest of the country doesn't have if the rest of the world doesn't have money, guess who gets it last? You know, travel and tourism, you know, coming on a a quick vacation. So we got to get our we got to get people back to work. And that may look like, you know, attracting new industries and and things here. We got to stop our small businesses from bleeding. And then you look at just justice, social justice. I mean, the pandemic was happening this year. What's going on right now? It has shown us how much more the disparities are between various communities, the disparities within communities of color on top of the disparities within the community, our communities as a whole, right? With Black Lives Matter protests happening following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis this summer, and criminal justice reform being a major topic during the session, Miller told us about one bill draft request that he is working on about criminal justice reform in the state. Other things that I'm looking at is, is the school to prison pipeline and how our young people are charged. So, you know, I have a, a BDR on criminal law and is directly dealing with the direct filing of youth, young people. So I have, it's a hard pill personally as um, someone who grew up a young black male at one point, I was a young black male, believe it or not. (laughs) Someone who's raising, you know, who has a young black son, who has a young black daughter. But this is not a black issue. I mean, it's a black issue because it happens more than likely to African-Americans and you know, people, people of color, right? Black and brown folks. But it could happen to anyone. And I have, it's a hard pill for me to swallow to know that someone who is not able to vote, not able to buy a drink, not able to gamble, not able to do a lot of things, not able to drive in some cases, can be charged automatically as an adult. All right, that was Freshman Assemblyman Cameron C.H. Miller. We are now going to talk with Freshman Assemblyman Andy Matthews, a Republican representing the northwestern part of Las Vegas. He ran against Democratic incumbent Shea Beckus and won. Matthews is a former sports journalist and former president of the Nevada Policy Research Institute, a conservative think tank. He told us a bit about his origins before becoming a politician. Yeah, you know, from the time I was a kid, I wanted to be nothing but a sports journalist, sports uh-huh. writer, and went to college for that, and I had a chance after I graduated to work a little bit for Fox Sports and then for Major League Baseball for a few years, and it was a great, exciting experience. 
as I got older, my interest started to shift a little bit. I think, you know, a couple of episodes, you know, the very contentious 2000 election, and then, of course, the, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. I was actually living just outside of New York City at the time, and I was in my early 20s when those two events occurred. And, yeah, these, these were events that kind of drew me in, not just politics, but to events that I, and, and issues that I just saw as bigger than what I was, what I was doing. Matthews moved to Las Vegas in 2006, where he managed the gubernatorial campaign of unsuccessful Republican candidate Bob Beers, and since then has been involved with politics around the state. He told us for a long time he wanted to stay behind the scenes in things like political consulting and campaign communication. But the 2015 legislative session here in Nevada was what really jolted him into running. He was disappointed in how things went for the Republicans that year when they held majorities in both houses as well as the governor's seat, but helped pass a tax package. He now wants to bring the Republican Party back into prominence since it was in a near super minority in the 2019 session. So obviously we got to rebuild and I thought, well, you know, I want to be part of that rebuilding process. My, my interest and my knowledge, I think, especially because of my MPRI days, was always much stronger at state level than at the federal level. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought, well, I would probably be a, a good fit in the state legislature. We asked Matthews about some of the bills that he's bringing to the table for this legislative session. I do have one on elections. Yeah, I just think the, the universal mail-in, mail-in balloting and, and the legalized ballot harvesting, I just don't, I just don't think it's good from an election security you know, standpoint. I can't tell you how many voters I talked to knocking on doors who said, um, oh yeah, I got my ballot in the mail today and I got three others for people I've never heard of. That does not instill a sense of confidence, you know, in the electorate that, that we've got, you know, secure elections. Then I've got some, some, some bills on what I would call sort of uh, government transparency, you know, bills. I've got a bill that I know a lot of people in the press actually love. It's one that would stiffen penalties for public records law violations. I've got a bill that would subject collective bargaining to the uh, open meeting law. I just think it's something that, that deserves some, some sunlight and, and to which the public, you know, ought to have access. And then I've got a couple other sort of, I guess, government efficiency-oriented bills. I'm running a bill that would establish charter agencies in Nevada. And then I've got a, a bill that is sort of a state-level RAINS Act, and that's R-E-I-N-S. And the, the genesis of that idea, I think it kind of started with, with Senator Rand Paul, the federal level. And the idea is basically is to rein in executive branch agencies. I think what, and I don't, this hasn't, to my knowledge, ever been implemented federally, but what I would basically do is say that regulations above a certain economic cost have to be authorized, have to be passed by Congress, right? So no more, you get a lot of rule writing mm-hmm. unilaterally from executive branch agencies. This would basically, it wouldn't, wouldn't do away with that altogether, but it would say above a certain threshold, you know, significant regulation have to be passed explicitly through an act of Congress. Like I said, to my knowledge, it's never been implemented at the national level. The state of Wisconsin, under Governor Walker, I think became the first state to put in something like that at the state level. And I basically got a bill that would do the same here in Nevada. Yeah, basically, we give lawmakers, uh, to people's representatives, uh, a say in that kind of process of writing regulations that can impact their lives rather than having unelected executive branch agencies do it. So those are my, that's it. That's my six bills. He also told us a few bills that he wants to see have bipartisan support this session. And I do also think that that the RAINS Act bill 
you know, I would also put into the category of not so much right versus left. You know, this is this is something where it's the legislature as a body sort of reasserting its its authority, right? You know, we we talk all the time about our, our country being founded on system of checks and balances, right? But and a lot of people, you know, in practice in recent years, a lot of people I think tend to think of that as, you know, one party against another, you know, and the balance of power there. But the idea of checks and balances was was balanced between the branches of government, right? And so, you know, the the Reigns Act idea is not about Republicans checking Democrats, Democrats checking Republicans. It's about the legislature sort of checking what I would say uh, is an executive branch that's just been given too much unilateral authority. And so, you know, I would say to my Democrat colleagues, um, you know, this is not, uh, you know, something that is is a Republican idea or a conservative idea. Mm -hmm. You ran for, you asked, you know, campaign asked for a job, you're hired to do a job, uh, and that's to represent your constituents, and yet so often um, responsibilities that ought to be in your, you know, domain have been, are, are being executed instead by another branch of government, and that power should have been usurped. And so for me, it's kind of restoring that balance between the branches. All right, that wraps up another segment of Freshman Orientation. This week we heard from Democrat Cameron C.H. Miller and Republican Andy Matthews, both in the Assembly. The interviews in today's segment were conducted by Tabitha Mueller and Riley Snyder, and they were edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to read more about the new legislative freshmen, you can find written versions of Freshman Orientation on our website. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Megan Messerly, C.H. Miller, and Andy Matthews for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen, or share it on social media. It helps the show grow and reach more people. If you would like to tell us how we are doing, send us a comment, question, or any of your concerns. You can do so by emailing me at joey at the nvindy.com or jacob at the nvindy.com. Local Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional original music this week by Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. Joey, I'm so sorry to do this to you. He's just started grinding coffee. Oh, 10 out of 10. He just finished. So let's <laughs> let's rock and roll. That's okay. Oh, Ellie- I, I, there was false alarm, false alarm. Still going. <laughs> grind number two, grind number two. <laughs> How much is he grinding? <laughs> 10 pounds of coffee. Okay, I think he's done.